2: A Living
1: History Production. I'm Peter Hart.
3: And I'm Gary Bain.
1: And together, we're Pete and Pete Gary's Military history,
3: history Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, everyone, and welcome
1: to uh, the
3: podcast. What if it's the
1: afternoon or evening when they listen to well, it? Well, then, good morning, good day, good evening, goodbye good start <laughs> yeah
3: right well welcome to the podcast and uh, today is exciting pete because we start a new series and that series is going to be on the second not the first definitely not the first the second fife and four far yeomanry that's a bit of a mouthful five and four far 54 far. <laughs> so tell us a bit about uh, why we're choosing that particular Group of individuals.
1: Well, there's soldiers. one. There's one. It's not a secret, is it, that my new book, uh, which is out on the uh, 12th of May. What's it called? It's called Burning Steel. Right. A, a can, tank regiment of war, 1939-45. Can can still burning? Well, it, yeah, you'll find out as we go through. Uh, the, the, this. So, what what is the podcast? Well, it's based. It's based on, you know what my job was. I was the all-historian of the Imperial War Museum for many, 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 many years. They loved me, my my bosses. Bryn Hammond. He said they didn't even know you weren't there for the last 20 <laughs> Yeah. So I'm tripping that um, but uh, I did a project on the second five and four fire yeomenry or five T 4 fires as I always call them um, and the, it was it was the same as we've done some of these projects before we did one from the at close range book uh, that was satellite Cesars that was artillery this is the tank one and then later on I did one on the 16th thermal Light infantry and that was the infantry one It's sort of to give a picture of the and the idea you interview as many people as possible to get a, a wide view. Uh, so that you don't just get the outriders, you get a general view of everything. Uh, I, I think it works. Um, so we interviewed. Guess who we interviewed? Tank commanders. Yep, uh, loads of them. Loads of them. So
3: loaders as well. Loaders you? as well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> While well, well, they were wireless operators as well. The the gunners, the drivers, the co-drivers, uh, officers, NCOs, troopers, uh, cooks. Um, uh, road sweeper no that's not true but, we no, did. but you, you did interview the backroom staff didn't you as it yeah. as
3: it were the fitters the mechanics lorry drivers and Storman. yeah one of your many jobs
1: in the army proud proud and you were uh, but they're important that but one thing that we've you learn from all history is without these people there's for instance without the lorry drivers and the stormer there's no fuel there's no ammunition so the tanks are going nowhere and they're doing nothing so um now we left it late uh but we were lucky uh we, we got as many interviews done as possible uh and uh, we had a lot of help from the uh, regimental associations but most of all we've got to thank the war museum who who provided the finance and the impetus behind it all uh and uh Basically, it's a tribute to what these men did fighting Nazi Germany. Uh, so uh, it's it to me, it, to me it, it means a lot to me this this project. Uh, there'll be no funny voices. Um, a lot of our fans have asked us to do Friends. more. They've asked us to do more uh, funnier voices and accents, haven't they? Uh, there's been a demand for it. I think they're called critics. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, but this 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 podcast uh, series, uh, although it starts fairly quietly. Uh, Become so appallingly unpleasant that, uh, that we, that there's no real room for it. We'll have the occasional aye, just so you know. Well, I was also you know. going to
3: say, plus the fact that we can't actually do Scottish accents. No, we
1: can't, except for aye.
3: <laughs> so, the uh, the 5th and 4th are yeomanry, Repeat. What what were they? Where did they come from?
1: Well, like the South of Tazars, are a traditional uh, county territorial unit. So, where do you think their offices come from?
3: Well, if it's the same, it would be the, uh, the great and the good of... Of society the landed gentry we know a landed gentry and he's scottish david baron yeah yep. factory owners businessmen trade so, trade gary trade <laughs> now the ncos they they were either former regular soldiers long-standing old territorials or men with some standing such as factory foremen or bank, bank Clarks, clerks yeah. that
1: sort of thing uh, the men, where would they come from? Well, they they come from the farms, the estates, the shops, the factories. And, and of course, many of those means of employment were owned by their officers. Um, uh, so socially disparate, but collectively, what would you say they were most proud of?
3: Well, I, I should imagine their Scottish heritage and uh, their uni- units' traditions.
1: Yeah, they were they were proud of the Fife and Forfar Yeomanry, uh, and they did they could say it unlike <laughs> like us. Yeah, okay.
3: in the post-war <laughs> reorganisation of the Territorials, they were converted from cavalry to become the 20th Armoured Car Company, Fife and Forfar Yeomanry Tank Corps in 1919. That does make any sense. We're drill halls based at Cooper, Dunfermline and Dundee. Cool. I've been to all
1: those places. I don't think I've been to any of them. Um, now, uh, where, where, so war is imminent. So There's a Munich crisis, 38. Uh, and the territorial army begins to swell, a bit like you've occasionally done in the past uh, through overeating. and. In- I think you'll find that's increased rapidly in strength. All right. <laughs> same, same thing, really, isn't it? Yeah. Swelling. The 20th uh, Armoured Car Company, they double in size. And in December 38, it becomes known as the first... First, Gary, fifth and Four fire yeomanry. Then, guess what happened? Well, in
3: uh, April 1939, it was doubled in size again. I wonder why. I wonder if somebody knew what was going to happen in 1939. And it, uh, and, and what do they call when it's doubled in size? Are they all one big unit? No, they are imaginatively called the second fifth and, and fourth fire yeomanry. <laughs> You're having trouble. I'm having that real thing. trouble with it. And they were under the command of Lieutenant Colonel. A.H. McIntosh. I'm not sure what the A stands for. No,
1: neither no, am I. That's right. <laughs> I didn't quite find that out. Now, um, we'll have a look at a couple of characters that are going to come up. And one young officer I particularly like, uh, he's uh, a great character. I remember interviewing him on his Scottish estate near Abacaldi. I don't know how you pronounce that. It might be Feldy as well. Scotland. In Scotland, yeah. And he was called uh, Douglas Hutchison. Uh, he, 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 he's... A bit like yourself, Gary, neither the appearance nor the inclinations of a natural soldier. Uh, despite a family tradition of service as officers in the in the 50 um, But the shadow of war, like for so many young men, makes him determined to do his bit. And what does he say?
3: Second Lieutenant Douglas Hutchison, C Squadron, Second Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry. One was aware of the likelihood of becoming involved in a war. My brother, then being in the black watch, I decided that I would go in something different, so I joined the 5th and 4th R. Yeomanry. I knew a good many of the officers in the regiment. In fact, several of them were members of my family. <laughs> the regiment had indeed been commanded by a cousin of my father's. They were kind enough, on the strength of the OTC experience,
1: to give me a commission, to which I was certainly not entitled otherwise.' Now, uh, every, you can imagine all over the country, people are watching what's going on in the international scene, a bit like we're doing with the Ukraine, I suppose, uh, following it in newspapers. We, we, you know, whatever, uh, that's all they've got then, really. Uh, and then everyone must be making their own decision as, as to, 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 to what's next. Uh, you can see that, can't you? Yes,
3: and, and you're going to relay what uh, a young man called Alexander Frederick thought of the situation.
1: We hummed and hawed about what we should do. And finally on April 26, 1939, the whole bunch of us joined the territorials. We were just asked our name and address and who your parents were. Were you interested in the army and did you have any idea of, ideas of what you would do? Things like that. You got a health check by an old doctor who simply said, "Oh, god, you're a fine-looking Scottish." <laughs> This is why we're not doing accents. My God, you're a fine-looking laddie. I knew your father. (laughs) And we were in. I suppose it's better than knowing his mother.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Now, that April, the the recruits, they're pouring in through the doors of the drill halls. And uh, to the recruits, it seemed as if some of the drill instructors shouted. Some shouted
1: a lot. (laughs) And some never (laughs) stopped shouting. Now they're going through the normal training, which we're not going to do in any detail. So they've got to master drill uh, and and all the other things, and so then the brighter ones move on to signalling, and a few of the really lucky ones get to learn how to use the Vickers machine gun or learning to drive. Um, that's that last one's particularly important. Why might that be in a mechanized regiment? Uh, well, I think you've just given the, the game away. You used the word mechanised. A mechanised cavalry
3: regiment, there's a demand for a large number of drivers. But at that time, very few had driving licences. I haven't got one now. <laughs> I've been looking for a lift home, I expect. Now, at the weekend, they'd go to the Ansmuir camping grounds near the town of Ladybank. And here... Alex Gilchrist found himself giving instruction in driving the Mark 6B tank and Daimler Stair armoured car. And this is what Trooper Alex Gilchrist of HQ Squadron 2nd, Fife and 4th Fire Yeomanry had to say. They're all 2nd, Fife and Four Fire." Yeah, I'm going to stop, stop. saying that yes, no. it's
1: it's a, it's a test of your pronunciation skills as well.
3: <laughs> we had one or two vehicles. I don't know where they came from. There was two Mark 6B light tanks with a Meadows engine in it. I was interested in that. A driver, wireless operator, gunner and a commander. Beautiful to drive. The thing with driving a car, you had to watch where you went. But the first time in my life, you got the thrill of going over Bracken and everything else with tracks. We used to take these chaps out to teach them to drive on these things. Also, a Dame Listea armoured car. It could drive backwards at the same speed as forward. I used to get to drive this thing. I thought it was great fun. It always amused me to think if you were going into battle one way
1: and things didn't go right, you turned the seat round and drove back the other way. I like. He's a great character, Alec Gilchrist. Uh, now, uh, the, the, I ought to re- re- explain. There's a driver, a wireless operator, stroke gunner. So th- that's a, 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 the same person. It's a crew of three. I just assumed he was stroking the gunner. <laughs> sort of yes but there's it's a crew of 3 but these are grotty old tanks we'll talk some more about the mark 6 like me, and you, we'll put a picture of one up i think on the podcast thing if theme. we remember if we remember or if you remember yeah uh so in july 1939 both the first and second 54 go to their <laughs> annual camp uh and this year it's at waitwith lines at Catarick in that's in sunny england in fact it's in is it in Yorkshire? Yes, it is. It's near Darlington, isn't it? And here they were introduced to a little taste of the real army. And I'm uh, I'm going to say what uh, trooper Ron Forbes of Headquarters Squadron says. We were on the canvas. They started with the old army sort of discipline of laying out your kit. The bell tents were all in perfect long lines, and we all laid out the kits in, in lines. The boots and blankets and everything all had to be dead in line. It was really worth seeing. You wouldn't believe that about 50 tents and boots all dead in line. It was really wonderful. Wow. Now, it was here that
3: many of the recruits are, are taught how to drive, uh, but given the unimpres- unimpressive nature of their tanks, which you alluded to earlier, there was apprehension as to what they might face in a real war. And this is what Trooper Alexander Frederick had to say.
1: We were told not to worry about all those mass German tanks that you saw on the government British News, the Pathé News in the cinemas. They were all made of wood. <laughs> Some of us thought they must be because our fathers had told us they'd thumped the Germans in 1918 there was nothing left in Germany and they couldn't possibly have built all those things up again. We were a wee bit in- innocent of the capabilities of Herr Krupp and his vast machinery plants in the Ruhr. Well, so, well, what's the main function, perhaps, for a, of a a new territorial unit of a, of a camp like a Catric camp, a, a, a territorial camp? What do you think it is? Well, we've referred to it in in other podcasts where we talked
3: about training and the and the like, and it, it's to to actually bind them together, um, and, and for the first time at that training camp, the the second five and four file yeomanry, well done, Gary, gained a sense of identity. And this is what a Trooper Jack 1 of HQ Squadron says. That camp was the real binding together of the regiment. It made us proud of this semi-Fred Carno type army we were in at that time. It made us proud to be in the Fife and Far. Now, for anyone under the age of 70 listening to the podcast... Fred Carnot, whose real name was Frederick John Westacott, he was a, a, a well-known stage comedian and impresario. And uh, he, he's credited with popularising the custard pie-in-the-face One games. of
1: our favourite gags, <laughs> Absolutely.
3: And he also had such luminaries as Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel working for him. And uh, he he was uh, so famous that his name became associated with any chaotic situation and the disorganised volunteer soldiers of the Great War and other wars the Second World War included labelled themselves Fred Carnot's Army and there's a song Pete that I think
1: we should try (laughs) for well, the for the I noticed, enjoyment you, i know yes well, you've, you've printed out the lyrics we're only going to sing some of the lyrics as yes. they descend into appalling racism but uh, uh now this, this say, was sent
3: to a, a, a famous uh, sort of church
1: type which i don't song, know which, of which we don't know so so <laughs> we'll just make it up and sing together who's going to lead off what key are we doing it in um c c right we are Fred me, the Ragtime Infantry We cannot shoot, we cannot fight, what ruddy use are we? And when we get to Berlin, the Kaiser he will say Ach, Tom! My God! What, what a, a very, ruddy very fine lot are the ragtime infantry!
3: Soldiers are known
1: for saying, "Ruddy." <laughs> Bloody are <laughs> right. So that's uh, that. So that explains that. Um, uh, now the mobilisation that that follows very quickly after the camp, doesn't it? Um, uh, and and they're mobilised before the declaration of war. Of course they are. They're mobilised on Friday, first of September. And uh, Second Lieutenant Douglas Hutchison, C Squadron, said this: "I was actually shooting with a friend of my father's.
3: The butler came out with lunch and with the announcement that the Germans had gone into Poland that morning, the first of September." I finished my day's shooting and then motored home and reported to the Kekaldi drill hole in my uniform the next
1: morning. That was it. It's just such a normal lifestyle for the average bloke those days. But he's a lovely, he was a lovely chap, he was. And now all over, all over 54 Far Lands, uh, the men are uh, reporting for duty to the, as fast as possible to the drill hole. Well, after they've finished shooting things. You know.
3: Now, A Squadron, <laughs> they were in St Andrews. Yep. B Squadron at Dunfermline, yep. C Squadron at Kakaldi and the HQ at Dundee. And uh, you're going to say what Trooper James... Dowie of B-Squadron thought about the situation.
1: Well, he's introducing another great character, which is another local landed gentry, John Gilmore, Sir John Gilmore, usually. Uh, He became an MP later. Anyway, uh, Dowie says this. John Gilmore, the officer commanding B-Squadron, and he said, We'll go into our office now and we'll listen to the Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain. This will determine whether it's going to be peace or war, but I have no doubt it will be the latter. Of course, he was right. Chamberlain said, I've had no communication from the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler, and therefore a state of war now exists between Britain and Germany. A corporal fell in a dead faint at my feet. <laughs> then another oldest chap, he started to cry because he'd been with the five and four-four in the First World War and now his son, who was 18, was in it. That was the emotion he had thinking of his son going to war. I said, my oh, God, this is a great thing. One chap falls in a faint and the other one's crying. I was quite happy. We were young and silly at that time. Oh, this is great. We'll be going to Paris. We'll meet the Mademoiselles. Nobody envisioned a long war. Soldiers always the same. It'll be over by Christmas. Over by Christmas. Get to Paris and shag the Mademoiselles. Hey, it's going to be great.
3: <laughs> or perhaps just talk to them. Yeah. That was the kind of soldier you were. Now, various scares in the interwar years had led a, a, a popular acceptance that the bomber must always get through. To cause unimaginable distraction. So consequently, air raid defence and emergency schemes had a natural priority. And it was certainly hard work. Well,
1: you're going to say that. And, and I've been to this beach, but, uh, oh, you, I should never have said, it. bruh, It's not pronounced brouty as any normal English upstanding chap would, I think. But anyway, this is, uh, Trooper Jack one. And he's going to have HQ school and he's going to tell us what he had to do on, on Bray Bray. Our job was filling
3: sandbags down at Bratty Ferry Beach. (laughs) Taken down by a truck with haversack rations, and we filled sandbags, and filled sandbags, and filled more sandbags. Further along were the corporation workers filling sandbags, and we were rather peeved because we were on two shillings a day, and we knew they were getting more, doing exactly the same job as we were doing. It grated just that wee bit. I think we shifted half of Bray Ferry Beach. If you put too much in, you couldn't lift the damn thing. It certainly
1: strengthened us. I love that. Soldiers never complain then. <laughs> no, never. Certainly not about money. Right. So uh, military training begins in earnest. Of course it does. Um, so, again, we're on the standard things, aren't we? So what, what can you imagine they have to do? What's one of the best ways of getting men fit? Well, to raise
3: basic fitness levels, route marching, it's its always a, a good way of doing it. It's a staple of military training. Always Absolutely. There's also trench digging and work assisting
1: in the uh, local farmer's harvest. Well, because it was harvest time, this is a part of it's a rural community. Yeah, Yeah,
3: and that helps toughen up any of those men who may have been unused to hard physical labour in their yeah. civilian lives. Shop workers, things yeah, and like that. You mentioned them, yeah. <laughs> and Hutchison. <laughs> now, in those early days... The problems must have seemed almost overwhelming. The unit, as recruited, consisted of 18 officers and 393 other ranks. All fit for service? No. Uh, so the, the rushed and inadequate medicals taken during the enlistment process now came back to haunt them, Pete. Properly conducted medicals revealed several undiagnosed cases of tuberculosis all of which had to be discharged. Well, of course they
1: did, yeah. Now, 1st of October, so not long, they, they, they moved the, the first Fife and Yeomanry, Fife and Fourfire Yeomanry, bug out, i this wrong as well, though, moved south, leaving 54-4 uh, land, to Beaumont Barracks at Aldershot. And that, that of course, frees up space in the drill halls uh, for the junior, the second fourfires, and allows them to move into some of the better billets as well that surrounded the drill halls. Um... Late October, C and H h headquarters squadrons moved to Leslie uh, while A and B squadrons uh, moved to Markinch. markinch uh, if you don't know Scottish geography that's about a mile away so they're pretty close together, or even
3: uh, Leslie if you don't know Leslie. <laughs> plushcare.com slash weight (laughs) loss.
1: Oh dear,
3: that's uh, very amusing. So the HQ squadron, that moves from Dundee to join C squadron at Cacaldi. Here, they moved into the Adam Smith Hall.
1: So this is—they're making a constant series of little moves around around the place. Um, uh, Adam Smith Hall—I I don't know that. I'm, I, I must go and Fine look. Find out a Scottish name. It is uh, filled to the brim, of course. Uh, and uh, I, I like this next story because there's two two idiots amongst the other ranks, and there's a new regimental sergeant major arrives, regimental sergeant major Jones. Um, and uh, you're going to be trooper Jack One of a headquarters squadron. Two of my friends. Willie Fenwick and Arthur
3: Schofield had their heads shaved completely they did this just for sheer devilment until their hair grew again they had to wear their berets at all times Arthur Schofield was lying in the next bed to me in the Adam Smith's hall Uh, and that evening the number of people who came along to see Arthur's head of no hair I couldn't get to sleep everybody came along and lifted his
1: beret up to see his head he was a wild one, Arthur. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine the RSM's reaction. Uh, they're now together at last at Uh Was it Kirkcuddy? Yes, I think yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they start to work. They started to work on regimental exercises. What's their official role? Well, it's an anti-invasion force.
3: Is that likely? Well, an actual German landing was considered unlikely. But there was always the possibility of a German
1: raid on Scotland's vulnerable east coast. So what do they do? They map out theoretical lines of defence. There's no chance of them being dug on the ground. There's no, you know, this is theoretical. Uh, And uh, there were false alarms. uh, And uh, (laughs) what would the response, what could they have done? Well,
3: at first, there's very little effective response that they could have mounted. When at last a few more tanks, brain gun carriers and a couple of Rolls-Royce armoured cars had been gathered together, Colonel Sandy... That's why nobody knows his first name. He's always called Sandy. McIntosh decided to test the battle readiness of his all-unsuspecting men. How does he do that then? Well, in great secrecy, an emergency turnout was planned and with no advance notice whatsoever, the regiment was awoken early one cold December morning to hear that a German invasion was on. How did the lads react to this? Well, it varied splendidly, ranging from the excited yet determined to the uh, rightly (laughs) incredulous. As the Regimental History reports,
1: most were merely sleepy. (laughs) I don't know why I found that so funny. I actually put that in the book. It just tickled my... I like the idea of... (laughs) I'm sleepy and swearing a lot.
3: Mm. (laughs) Now, as there were terrible delays... Typically, in equipping them with their allotted Mark 6 B, Which in self were almost useless. Uh, the makeshift training was uh, quite frankly surreal.
1: You're going to be Trooper Jack 1. Tell us, tell us, Jack, you're with the Headquarters Squadron. We ran around without
3: tanks, without vehicles, but we were a tank. And the troop commander shouted orders to the tank commanders, waved flags. And we all veered to the right, or veered to the left. To make it more interesting, we had anti-tank gunners gunners, who laid down on the ground and said, Bang! 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 You hoped your tank was put out of action so that you could all sit down and enjoy a smoke. It may sound farcical. It was farcical to look at. But it did teach us that you were dependent on the other two people. That you were getting some sort of drill so that when you did get a tank, you would know what to do. I suppose they're
1: all collectively learning bits and bobs. Uh, but, but are they ready, really, for war? Or, or This isn't proper training, really, is it? No, but they are improving, and they're
3: improving fast. And then, in the depths of winter, they found that they were bound for the land of a Scotland's oldest enemy. Who might that be, Pete? England! <laughs> now, on the 18th of January 1940, the second Fife and Four Yeomanry found themselves en route for Beaumont Cavalry Barracks, which is in
1: order shop. They'd take it over from the 1st, who just buggered off to... Oh, sorry. they just uh, gone their embarked. way... Embarked. Embarked <laughs> to join the 51st Highland Division in France. Um, now, what were these barracks like? Right, well, they're, they're
3: totally unfit for the accommodation of troops, so naturally they uh, are used to accommodate troops. And this is what Trooper Ron Forbes
1: has to say. Bowman barracks had been condemned for years before the war. They just never got round to demolishing it. When the war came along, it was needed. It was a Victorian cavalry barracks so that all the stables were underneath the living accommodation. The floors were all tar pitch, so if you swept the floor, you raised a cloud of black dust. Very often, everybody had a sort of black around their mouth. It was an ancient place. It it isn't funny enough, it isn't. It's only 100 years old at most. Uh, But that's what, to their perception, That was where we were introduced to the three biscuits. Previously, you'd had a straw mattress on your bed, but this time you got these three square hard padded things that you put on your bed. It wasn't very comfortable. And that, the the three biscuits, standard First World War issue... uh now, when I was uh, uh, a, a lad, a young soldier of sixteen, I went to uh,
3: Dettingen Barracks, which uh, is uh, near Camberley in Surrey, and it was very much the same. It had been condemned, and so they charged us slightly less for for
1: accommodation. <laughs> it had been built in the eight, late 1850s, so it was uh, it was 90 years old. So that's it, interesting. Which now. That that would just be a building that was built in the 1920s. It wouldn't seem that old, would it? But anyway, uh, what what uh, what made it particularly bad? Do you think for for the lads as they move in in uh, in early 1940? Well,
3: the freezing cold weather exposed uh, the numerous inadequacies <laughs> of military plumbing. <laughs> yes. And any positive side? Well, they were now getting a full complement of Mark 6Bs topped up with a fair number of the brain gun carriers. And this is 2nd uh, Lieutenant Douglas Hutchinson of C Squadron. Each squadron had two troops of Mark 6Bs. I had one of those and four troops of Bren gun carriers. We were supposed to be divisional ca- cavalry. They later evolved into what they called a reconnaissance regiment for the infantry divisions. The Mark Six were pretty useless tanks. They had a sort of coaxially mounted heavy machine gun, very light armour, and were pretty unreliable mechanically. They were unimpressive. We always lagged behind the Germans in our tank design. I don't know why that should be. The Bren gun carriers were a bit more reliable, but you couldn't be impressed by a Bren gun carrier. You had a little bit of protection from ordinary bullets, but that was all. You had one brain gun, which you dismounted to
1: fire, the others had rifles. Now they, they weren't at Aldershot long, Bowman Barracks long, but there's one thing that a lot of the lads and the official, uh, the, the regimental history remark on. Guess what? What happened? Guess. Guess what it was? Do you think it was something about training? Do you think it was something about the war and air raid? What do you think caused all the lads to comment? Well, this is quite uh, quite surreal in itself. The, the severe
3: weather prompted the rapid erosion of the coal stores in the barracks cellars. Well, well. But That's not very interesting. Well, suddenly, Colonel McIntosh got an urgent summons. A cannibalised tank had been discovered in the coal (laughs) cellar. Buried beneath the coal. (laughs) Yeah, er everything of any use had been stripped off uh, and the skeleton remains had been buried under mounds of coal. Now, many of the regiment thought this was just an old wives' tale. But I believe you interviewed some who yeah.
1: actually remembered it. Well, Trooper Ron Forbes, he said this, we heard we heard about it when it happened, and we saw it. I think it was a Mark II or Mark I. It was one of the old tanks, but you could hardly recognise it. It was just a shell by the time they'd found it. It was treated like a mystery. It was an exhibition piece. There were all sorts of stories went round about how someone had lost their tank on training, and somebody else had hid it in the coal cellar and covered it with coal. This cellar must have been filled with coal before we arrived and it was only by us using it that it was revealed. I saw it and that is, you know, that, that, that sounds pretty convincing to me no, so there's there's no unanimous
3: unanimity
1: as to what the take
3: actually was or who'd been
1: guilty of leaving. Well, it. there are a lot of suspicions that it was the first fifty-four. party it was a Mark Six, uh, but there you go. Um, so what happens next? So well, they they really aren't there long,
3: are they? They they just aren't. No, sixteenth February nineteen forty, they moved to billets in the nearby villages of Farnham and Runfold. I can say them. Here they were in comfortable billets, and as in Scotland. They had an anti-invasion role. Well, what did that... that they're not, what, on the coast, or, or is it shrunk? Well, no, they it shrunk right down to carrying out regular anti-parachutist patrols along the road running along the spine of Hogsback
1: Ridge. Now, that stretches between Farnham and Guildford. Does it? Right. So, uh, their main priority at this time is armoured car training. They're a recce regiment, reconnaissance regiment. And uh, as the weather gets better, they're out more and more ready. But what, what are they hoping they're going to be? Well, they, they're hoping for a possible deployment
3: uh, and as the uh, divisional cavalry with the Ninth Highland Division. So they're hoping to go to war
1: in 1940. Yeah, they're hoping to go to France. Yeah. Uh, so what they're doing, regular exercises in the local woods and on the north down ridges, uh, pra- practising this recce roll. That, 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 they were all excited. Um, the under-19s are posted away, uh to to safer, you know, where they're not going to be sent out to France. Well, they're
3: not imminently going to be deployed, and that's presumably because of their age, Pete. And who do they get to replace them?
1: Lots of more 54 Well, they
3: got a, a lot of older recru- recruits, and as might be expected, given where they are, many of these new arrivals were um, English. Dun, dun, dun! And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Douglas Hutchison of Sea squadron says. From then onward, it was a continuing process as recruits came in. They tended to be more English than Scottish, simply because there are more people in England. It was inevitable, and a very good thing too. In the First World War, when they had these appalling casualties and people were all recruited in the same place, you got great lumps of people being killed from small towns or villages at the same time. At least that was mitigated to some extent, Right up to the end, the Scottish nucleus in the regiment was dominant, but not aggressively so. I think we were a very
1: happy regiment. Scots, not aggressive. Why do I not believe that? (laughs) It doesn't sound very Scottish to me. No. No. Now,
3: there was, uh, naturally, this is the British Army after all, a great deal of banter between the English interlopers and the Scots, but it was mostly... All in
1: fun. (laughs) Not a trace of unpleasantness, sir. You're going to be now Lance Corporal Alex Gilchrist, HQ Squadron.
3: The first batch of English fellas arrived at Farnham. They arrived there. We got on with them very well. I remember a chap I couldn't make out what the hell he was saying. He was a cockney. They're horrible, them cockneys. You hear the odd, you're a bloody Englishman, but all in good fun. (laughs) There was never any real resentment against them. They seemed to mix in very, very well. To accept us all, right, they got
1: into the thing and joined in with us. One of the things I most liked was the thing that people do mention, that if there was a row caused by anything, it was about whether there was salt or or sugar in the porridge, (laughs) which still can cause a frisson to this day. Now, um... A lot of them must have hoped or feared that they were going to be sent straight away uh, overseas. That the war's going to hell on a hind cart. Come March, uh, May, uh, June. Uh, France, Belgium—that they're in trouble there. Well, you know, the retreat to Dunkirk or Norway—that's not going well. Uh, but what happens? Well, it's not to be. The
3: Dunkirk evacuation was in full swing. So all they could do was stiffen their resolve, attend diligently to their training, and wait for the time when it was their turn to face this terrifying Nazi war machine.
1: You really do like a bit of purple prose, don't you?
3: I do. Now, whatever they hoped or feared might happen, the British Army managed to surprise most of the men of the 2nd, 5th and 4th Yeomanry when, without any warning, they were posted to Dungannon in Northern Ireland in June 1940. Now, the news came smothered with a veil of secrecy. And uh, this is what
1: Major Sir John Gilmore of B Squadron says. He's a chap we met earlier. uh, uh, He said, I was duty officer one night because we were always on standby at nights in case of invasion. A man arrived on a motorcycle with a message which said, prepare to move on a known destination at 24 hours notice. And underneath it said, copy to Northern Ireland District Belfast, which rather gave it away. (laughs) I did like that quote. Was that message typed by a Scotsman? Yes. <laughs> That's why I gave it a little bit of a Scottish accent. And now, ladies and gentlemen of our audience, you'll see why we're not doing accents on this. Now, this triggered the usual mad
3: rush of preparations before they departed by a combination of road and rail. They're done out. To Stranraa. <laughs> now, by the 22nd of June, the bulk of the second, five and fourth five Yeomanry were aboard a train bound for the Delights... Of Dungannon in County Tyrone.
1: Now, this train was overloaded. And one of the great stories is is that there was a bit of a hill in the final stretch from a place called Cully's Land to Dungannon. And they couldn't get up the hill. And it's one of the, it would, if they ever make a film of this, it'll be the best scene in it. Because they can't get the bloody thing in the hill. And there's a classic comic moment. Guess what happens? You'll never guess what happened. And don't think of John Cleese at all. Well, is this when the
3: driver was seen soundly thrashing the side of the engine with his hammer? Um,
1: I just look,
3: yeah, well, I'll teach you. Now eventually, another engine was dispatched to help them up the hill.
1: Uh, and you could- that, so many of them talk about that; it's great, but none of the quotes were that great. Fully enough, they talk about it, but it, yeah. But that sometimes happens with oral history. Sometimes a story isn't told in a in a clear and mainly because they're laughing too much, I suspect.
3: Now, typically, there was some speculation as to how they would be received by the local inhabitants. Well, the,
1: the, the, the ha- there was there'd been trouble in Ireland. It's only what two, it's ten, fifteen years after the, uh, some really unpleasant goings on for both sides. um they need to worry though, do they? And this quote, uh, this quote's got one of the greatest euphemisms I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> it's such unfortunate I'm going to have to read it because it would have been much better suited to your innocent tones. Because the, the local families, say invite them into their homes and they treat them like their own. And this is what Trooper James Dowie of Beast Gooden says Excellent. I had four houses I could go to. We used to get lovely suppers and things like that. Some of the boys even used to take their equipment to the houses. And sometimes the daughters would blanco your equipment and polish up your brasses for you.
3: Yes. (laughs) Nothing like like having your brasses polished up, Gary. (laughs) Moving on swiftly. Having got to Ireland, the question was, why on earth had the regiment been detached from the 9th Highland Division and sent there?
1: What were they meant to be doing? Well, this is uh, and, and, and this is where I do like Douglas Hutchison, second lieutenant at this point, uh, but he, he just says, he just makes it clear what he thinks of it. Our role was to rush down to wherever the Germans
3: landed and sweep them back into the sea. Trouble is, our Mark 6Bs would never have got there, I shouldn't think. They would have all broken down. Some of the Bren carriers would have got there, I dare say, but it would be a long way to drive to get down there presuming they landed in county wexford or something like that i couldn't for the life of me see why the germans would want to come via ireland when they would have a double jump to get at
1: england and i think he's right uh, uh, they, they were just stashed there out of the way and free up accommodation i expect um um, well, the, the, the next quote is uh, farcical, uh, shows a great bit of squatty humour, and it's probably actually the most important thing that they did to, to thwart the mighty Nazi empire. And you're going to relate what Lance Corporal Alex Gilchrist did to bring down, his headquarters squadron, did to bring down Hitler as, as best he could while he was in Ireland.
3: About four of us used to go down to Dublin by train in civilian clothes. We used to walk past the German embassy and do V-signs to the Germans on
1: guard. Excellent. Because, of course, Ireland, Southern Ireland was neutral. Uh, so that's why they're in civilian clothes, they did that. Uh, what do you? How would you describe, what word would you use to describe the role of the Mark Sixes and Bren carriers of the second d at this time? One word? Yeah.
3: Nonsensical. I wonder why that word sprang to mind. I don't know. You wrote it on the notes. Oh right, yeah. Now, the regiment busied itself with training. So what taught training? What um, Well, convoy driving and drills a skill? for practice, yeah. They convoy driving that relentlessly. Uh, until map reading and the wireless control becomes second nature, even for o- officers. Definitely not for officers. Firing ranges were all orgr- oh. firing ranges were organised. Tactical exercises. Yeah, that tested their potential response to a landing by German parachutists. Run away! Whereas <laughs> other equally
1: unlikely emergencies. Um, rude marches, tough, small toughening up, a bit more prosaic, but that, you know... Uh, yeah, it, I mean, that's
3: really popular in an armoured unit. Are you saying about they're lazy? It. But it was all a matter of instilling a basic level of fitness in all of the men ready for the trials that lay ahead of them.
1: Now, in late December, they moved to a new billet in the a bi- a village of Besbrook. Uh, that's in County Armagh, And uh, you know where that is, so we... we this is quite interesting. Now, I'm going to... The, the choice of time of this move, remember how well they've been received in Dungannon? Yeah. This causes a problem and Trooper Ron Forbes, Headquarters Squadron, re- reveals all. There were big objections in the town, he means Dungannon. Everybody had their plans for parties and things. They wrote to Winston Churchill and some member of his staff answered and said they couldn't do anything about it. But when we got to Bestbrook and Christmas time came over, Churchill would see that the maximum amount of weekend leave was given to the regiment. So every taxi and bus was commandeered in Newry to go up to Newry's near Bestbrook to go to Dungannon for Christmas. Now, Bestbrook, uh, that's famous for other reasons now from the Northern Ireland. Uh, 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 yeah, well,
3: but it, it had the appearance at that time of a model village. But uh, the Nissen huts occupied by the regiment, they're not popular.
1: The, the lads had preferred being in billets with uh, the civilians, hadn't they? Um, uh, was it as welcoming, Bestbrook, do you think? And well, uh, overall,
3: it's nowhere near as welcoming to them.
1: Indeed, many of the soldiers were taken aback
3: by the levels of religious bigotry that existed between the Protestant and Catholic communities. Happily, I
1: presume that's all gone now. Yeah, absolutely.
3: And uh, this is what Trooper Leslie Gibson of HQ squadron has to say.
1: I got to know a family called Smith very, very well, and I just about lived there. I went in one day and I thought, things are very chilly in here. I said to the lady of the house, have I done something to offend you? Because I'd hate to think I'd done that. She said, well, I saw you speaking to Mrs Black. I said, yes, because one of my friends goes to Mrs Black's. What's wrong with that? They're Catholics. So what? They're just like you and I, ordinary people. Oh, but we don't talk to Catholics. Bestbrook, It's a lovely little village, beautiful, but I've never met such bigotry in all my life. And thank goodness that's been burnt away and it's now a lovely place where Catholic and Protestant live in harmony. Unfortunate choice of words. Burnt away. (laughs) Yes, it's a bit unfortunate. Now, it was a harsh winter. You realise we'll now get a complaint
3: about that. We will. It was a harsh winter and the frequent storms disrupted training. But the
1: tactical schemes resumed with a vengeance with the advent of spring. So they're polishing, they're refining their reconnaissance role. They're getting ready to be sent. But when? Where's the ninth Division? What's going to happen next? But but what's happening while well, they're getting ready? They're, they must be near perfection at their role now. Well, back in London it was decided
3: that the second Fife and Four Fire Yeomanry should be converted into an armoured regiment, which meant
1: a move back to England. Oh, is this their island holidays at an end? Well, that's the end of this week's episode as well. Um uh, what's happening next? Well, the, the second 54 files, they're converted into a proper tank regiment. Uh, first with Valentines, then Crusaders, and then the dreaded Sherman. Uh, uh, their training goes on and on and on and on, and they're overlooked for Middle East service, so they don't go to North Africa. Uh, and they begin to think they're never gonna go to war, and that's what we'll be looking at next time. Can I, can I remind you? I'm just reminding myself. Uh, that my my new book is out on the 12th of May. Uh Gary endorses this book wholeheartedly. He says, I've never read anything like it. Well, what more praise can... Burning Steel. You've even remembered the title. An Armoured Regiment at War, 1939-45. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your hospitality, Gary, and your lovely home. Thank you, Fred, for not farting.
3: And thank you, Pete, for not doing a uh, Cornish Pirate.
0: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at slash.